Well, hello. Good. Hi, Barb. Good to see you. Man, it is good to be together again uh, this afternoon. Man, um, if my math is right, I have the privilege of delivering two more messages to you as your pastor, um, and that is a hard decision to make. And uh, I just thought, man, what a better way to spend two weeks together than by walking through Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, let's open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is thought to be uh, maybe the richest chapter in all of the Bible. So we're going to kind of just skip across the surface in some ways it'll feel like. um, Because Romans chapter 8 is just incredible. It's like finding water in a desert or gold while you're on a hike you know, in a mountain, or, you know, a pillow when you're exhausted. Um, It just mines the depths of who we really are and wakes us up to live out our newfound identity because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Um, Today, we're going to look at the first 17 verses together, and it's here that we are called to remember who we are. We're called to remember who we are. Because we so easily forget, we can have a gospel amnesia of sorts. I think if you're being honest, we all, we all kind of suffer in general with forgetfulness, just in many areas of our life. Um, take exhibit A, um, the phrase, let's go, okay? The phrase, let's go, it's a phrase that people say nowadays when they're excited about something. Um, I've talked to many people about this and have asked over and over again, where did this phrase come from? Uh, how can we get people to stop saying it? You know, um, what did we used to say? You know, I've asked people to, to give me some information, just everybody in the world from my kids to athletes to, I don't know, you open a present you wanted. I don't know, people are just saying, let's go left and right. I know that when I was younger, I would, you know, play sports or watch sports and um, just anything good that ever happened in my life, I know that I said something, but it wasn't let's go. And I've forgot. I'm like, what do you say? So I only say that phrase now when I'm mocking my kids or, you know, making fun of somebody or something like that, being sarcastic. You know, no one can seem to remember what we used to say before let's go. We are awash in the phrase. And there doesn't seem to be another way forward in this life when we get excited anymore. Uh, But then last night, I experienced something, and I think I caught a glimpse. I remembered maybe what I used to say. I was watching baseball highlights, and a Los Angeles Angels announcer, when he was calling a home run, yelled out, yeah, baby. And I was like, I think that's what I used to say. Like, for a minute, I was like, I think that's what I did. You know, maybe there's something else. I don't know. I'm not saying that's cooler than let's go, but I at least caught a glimpse. I could remember for a second what life used to be like. I know this is petty, and I think it shows us how easily ways of thinking, though, uh, ideas, beliefs, they can kind of take over where you even forget where did this come from. Uh, You can even forget what did I used to think or say, and we can get so often, we're so used to even seeing ourselves in much grander ways than just sayings, seeing ourselves a certain way that we forget even who we are, not just what we used to say. Uh, There are many of us who walk in here tonight and we are awash uh, in ideas about ourselves and ideas about God that just simply aren't true and we can't even see it. We can't remember 
what it was like to think any other way. And we don't need baseball highlights to help us remember God gave us Romans chapter 8. And so the three things that um, I think we're going to see in this text that God gives us is the first thing that God wants you to remember that you're free. He wants you to remember that. And he wants you, secondly, to remember how to experience that freedom. But then thirdly, this climax of the gospel, he wants you to remember who you are. He wants you to remember who you are. So let's look in verses 1 through 4. We're going to read, stop, talk about it, and then we'll keep going through these three movements. But the first thing is that God wants you to remember that you're free. Look in verse 1 with me of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What has God done? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the whole buildup of Romans up to this point, has just been laying out for us in just glorious detail what God has done for us in Christ, all that Jesus has done for us. And so here he gets to the first verse of Romans chapter 8, and he says, there is therefore, because of what Christ has done for you, everything has changed. Because of Jesus, you are no longer condemned. This is just a legal word, condemnation. Uh, It literally means to rule against somebody because they are liable to punishment. It's to be ruled against, and the rule against you is that you are guilty, that you are liable to be punished because of what you've done, because of your sin. We we all get this in our life. We, We want to punish people. We understand how that works. When people do something wrong, we want them to be punished. In the same way, before a holy God, each one of us, what our sin has earned us, is this punishment. But here we have this declaration. There is no more condemnation. There's no more punishment. It's taken away. But look at how wonderful this is. What does it say? There is now no condemnation. Now means it doesn't exist. Like for you tonight, if you're a Christian, it's gone forever. It's it's removed, right? You don't owe God any more payments, you, you can't pay anymore to make yourself less condemned. You're, what does it say in verse 2? You are set free. You're set free. Right? There's no condemnation now, uh, and, and there's no condemnation not even in five years from now when you hope you're a better person. You know, you're like, if I could just clean myself up and, and become a better person, maybe there will actually be no condemnation in me for five years from now. Something like that. No, your past, your present, and your future sins are settled in the sight of God. I mean, you could literally take this verse, if you are a Christian, and you could put your name in the Bible. You could say, there is therefore now no condemnation for Rick, who is in Christ Jesus. Right? For Corey, who is in Christ Jesus. Like, we could, we could do this. This, this, this could be applied to us. How? How is this true? Well, the answer is it's Jesus, right? Look in verses 3 through 4. God has done something that we could not do. That's what it says. 
What has he done? He has been sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. The word likeness means that he really was a man, but he wasn't fully like all men. Right? He was sinless, so it uses the word likeness of sinful flesh. See, if Christ had not taken on our nature, he could not have been one of us. And on the other hand, if he had become completely like us, meaning had he sinned like every single other person on the planet, he could not have become our savior. He would have been condemned just like us. The punishment would have been for him, right? And so here he has come in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This word flesh, it just means our natural moral potential, which left to ourselves is not very high, right? You don't have to teach anybody in this world how to sin, We just naturally act selfishly in what we want to do with ourselves. But then look at verse 4. We see this law that's been fulfilled, that Christ has has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that it could be fulfilled in us. See, the law can never empower you to live righteously. It It just merely shows us, in a real sense, God's heart, his ways, his design, and and you and I are called to live into that, but it often just creates for us a revelation about how we don't live into that, how much we fall short, and we don't even live into our own laws. I mean, I have a law in my house that uh, my kids and my boys are supposed to fold their clothes and put them in the dresser, and I'm often like, hey, these are just thrown in here, you know, Uh, but then Elizabeth, when she's putting my clothes away, will often open my drawers and they're just thrown into there, right? I can clean it up for a day, make it, keep it going for a week, but I don't even do the same things that I have as a law for my kids, right? I don't even live up to my own standards even in how I fold my clothes. So this is revealing too much to us how much we don't live as we should. So we need more than a method of self-improvement. We need a savior. And that's what God has sent us. And he didn't just throw you water wings when you're drowning, saying, put these on and I hope you can make it to shore. No, he he willingly jumps in the ocean that you're drowning in to save you, knowing that it's going to require his life in the process. And so look at how this freedom that's been given to you, how it's spoken of, what is it called? It's called union with Jesus Look at verses 1 and 2. What does it say? Notice this word, in Christ Jesus. Right? There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Well, the Bible, this is how the Bible talks about your salvation. It doesn't talk about your salvation like you've been washed clean and then set loose. No, you've been given a new location, a new position that you stand in in the eyes of God. And the Bible uses, um, I think I've counted at least four simple illustrations to try to visualize this for us. It talks about a person's head and their body, that Jesus is the head and we are the body, right? That so all that the head is provides life, right, to the rest of the body. If, if you're cut off from the head, you don't have life. It talks about a building and parts of a building and how we are living stones joined together with the cornerstone of Jesus. If you take away the cornerstone, the building falls apart. We're just a bunch of bricks lying around. It talks about a husband and a wife and the intimacy that a husband and a wife share. That kind of union. 
But then it also talks about a vine or a tree and branches. But that you are getting your life from Jesus. You are joined with Jesus in that sort of way, which is why the illustration of if you cut a branch off of a, a vine or a tree, it dies. It has no life, does it? Right? You are joined to Jesus, and what pulses through him pulsates through you. The life he has, he shares with you. So this is what union with Christ means. God places you in Jesus. So all that happens to Jesus now applies to you. It's location. Like everything that he's done, everything that he's taken on in your place, you don't have to take that on anymore. That, that payment for your sin, you don't have to pay for it. He's paid for it. It applies to you. His defeating of death, you know that it applies to you. Right? Your eternal security, just like his, is it's applied to you. It's location. Just like if you went outside on Friday and you were in Oregon, you got wet, right? It was like a tsunami out there, or typhoon or something. I don't know. It was soaking wet. You didn't get sunburnt, right? I don't think anybody did. If you did, we need to, I don't know what happened to you, but right? We need to talk. Why? Because your location matters. What happens in that location happens to you. Guys, you really are free. You really are. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the great preacher, English preacher in the 1900s, said when he came to this verse, he says, when you come here, because this is true of you, Christians must never, ever, ever feel condemnation. Right? You should never allow yourself to feel condemnation. If you feel condemnation and you're a Christian, you can know that is not God's voice in my life. God is not speaking that over me. If you're a Christian, your sins, past, present, and future, are dealt with completely and finally. There's no more work to do. There's no condemnation. I mean, just think, do you know most of your troubles today lie in your failure to realize that's true? You've forgotten. We need to remember. I love how Ray Ortland he wrote a little tiny book about Romans 8. It's really good. And he writes in that little book, now if you have God's approval in Christ, can it be wrong to relish a sense of his approval? Is it wrong to enjoy it if it's true? I mean, do you think if I want to be an earnest Christian, I can't allow myself to enjoy the smile of God? Do not take yourself that seriously. Do not trust in yourself at all. Trust him as your all-sufficient savior. Romans 8, 1 is announcing to you with unqualified clarity the absoluteness of your acceptance in Christ. This is how the gospel works. You are accepted, you are approved of, you are no longer condemned, you're free. Right, the best example we have of this probably lies in, in John's gospel of chapter 8 with the, the woman caught in adultery, right? Where people bring this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. I mean, what shame and embarrassment in the act. And they say, Jesus, the law requires that we stone a woman like this. What do you say? And famously in that gospel, Jesus says, you know, whoever is without sin cast the first stone. So people walk away, and what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You won't believe it. I once met a Somali man who came to faith because of that. If you don't know, Somalis are synonymous with being Muslim. It's the most unengaged, one of the most unengaged, 
unreached people groups in the world, it's very dangerous to be a Christian in Somalia, let alone to convert if you're Somali. But his wife converted uh, first. And this guy was a taxi driver. And so his wife would, would make him a lunch or a dinner every night and put the dinner in his glove compartment. And after she became a Christian, she would put that in his glove compartment, and then she would put a little Bible on top and say, you should read that. And he would open the glove compartment and eat his dinner and then bring the Bible home and say, I'm not reading that. And this just kept happening day after day after day. And finally he goes, fine, I'll read it. And he opens the Bible, and he opens it to John chapter 8. And he starts reading it. And I don't know if you know this, but the story of the woman caught adultery is in the Quran as well. And he goes, oh, this story is in the Quran. I should read it. I can trust it. And it's word for word the same until, do you realize in the Quran, and this is where he just, his jaw hit the floor. He gets down there and in the Quran, Jesus picks up the stone and is the first one to throw it at her. And he goes, what is this? He keeps reading. He sees Jesus declare before Abraham was, I am. And he's like, well, I'm a Muslim. I follow Abraham, you know? And through that story, This man who had been trying so hard his entire life to work his way out of the condemnation that he knew he had before God, he was like, what is this? And his wife shared with him the gospel, that there is no condemnation now. So so the gospel order goes, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. Why? Because he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. The most deeply probing word here, I think, in these first two verses, is the word me. Can you say with Paul, the law of the spirit of life has set me free? Can you say that? Does set free describe what God has done in your life? Well, God not only wants you to know you're free, he wants you to experience freedom. Let's look at verse five. What does it say? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it did not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I'm just going to call this, what Paul's describing here is the me-centered mind versus the God-centered mind. But this is why remembering is so important. This is why he's wanting to remember who you are. And here he's calling us to remember how you even experience the freedom that you've received. Now, the me-centered mind is in the God-centered mind are both described in verses 5 through 8. Uh, the me-centered mind is essentially describing both non-Christians, so people who seek to find life apart from God. But it's also describing religious people. Religious people, you could say, like, maybe, maybe even some of us in this room. Definitely that Somali man, before he came to faith in Christ, 
See, religious people think very similar. They think if I live a certain way, then God has to bless me. Right? God owes me something if I do these things and don't do these things. Like in a, in a real sense, if you're a religious person, you think that through your behavior, you can control the hand of God in your life. Right? These are very similar people. Just living, trying to find life apart from God. And look at this progression. Do you see the progression here? He says, those who live according to the flesh, meaning trying to do life apart from God, those who live according to the flesh, how do they do that? They set their mind on the flesh, trying to do things on their own. Right? What's the result? What does he say? Death, verse 6. The result is death. That's why you have the vine and branch image, right? If the branch is cut off, trying to do life on your own, it's going to die. Right? What is their relationship with God? How is it described? Verse 7. They're hostile to God, right? Meaning they're opposed to God. They're unfriendly. They're antagonistic towards God, right? Why? Because if you're not religious, you're trying to avoid God. You don't want God interfering in your life. And if you're religious, you're trying to manipulate God. And if God doesn't do exactly what you want, you are going to be hostile towards God. That's why Paul concludes, anybody who lives in the flesh trying to do life on their own, they cannot please God. But look at this. What is this life described as? deadness. Verse 5, it's deadness. Verse 6, focusing on the self is just deadening to your heart. We were not meant to live like that. You were looking for life and experiencing death. Right? The world tells you if you are not in shape, right? if you are not thin, if you are not beautiful, if you're not sexually active, if you're not young, if you're not traveling, if you're not experimenting, if you're not trying new things or broadening your horizons or whatever, you're not alive. But, but is that true? I mean, just think about how many people in our world live that way. Are they on cloud nine? Do they experience life and peace? And they're seeking life apart from God. How's that going? It's deadening, isn't it? People are still trying to find life apart from God, and it just doesn't work. It's not pleasing to God either. But then you have the God-centered mind. Same progression on the opposite end, right? Those who live by the Spirit, how do they do that? This is where you find your freedom. You set your mind on the Spirit, right? What does that result in? Life and peace. What's your relationship with God? It's not hostile. God comes and lives inside of you. I mean, no other religion in the world, no other belief system in the world, even if it is an atheist worldview, believes that God, a holy God, perfect in every way, would take up residence inside of us. But not just the Holy Spirit. It calls it the Spirit of Christ. This is not saying that Jesus and the Spirit are um, identical, it's saying they're inseparable. Okay, so this is actually the key word here in Romans chapter 8, it's spirit. It's actually amazing when you see it. Romans chapters 1 through 7, the word spirit appears five times. In chapters 9 through 16, it appears eight times. Okay, so five times and eight times. In Romans chapter 8, the word spirit appears 21 times. So think about it. What does, God give you, what does God give you so that you would experience freedom that he's purchased for you? 
himself. Right? See, when someone becomes a Christian, you're not just changing your beliefs about what's important. You're, you're entering into a whole new relationship with God because as a Christian, you're lifted out of your self-centeredness and isolation of your flesh into a personal intimacy with the triune God. God is announcing over you in verse 9, you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit. Do you see this? Our passage, it has no commands. It doesn't say, if you do this, you're in the Spirit. If you do this, then you're in the Spirit. It's just saying you are this. There's no caveats here. Guys, if you are weak and weary and defeated, realize tonight Maybe the greatest verse here is in verse 11, that the same spirit that raised a dead man to life lives inside of you. I mean, think about that. And he never went into the grave again. And he's made the purification for sin and he's sitting on the throne. The same spirit that raised him from the dead lives inside of you. You are free and God wants you to experience that freedom. How do you do that? Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's what it's saying. And what generates real freedom in our life is not fear of punishment. It's it's fullness of heart. That's where the freedom comes from. And I think many of us, we're like the person who maybe our bail has been paid and and we've been set free, the jail cell's been opened, and, and we've chosen just to stay in. We've not walked out. We keep doing these things that actually are just not living into the truth of what is real anymore. I I recently saw a guy working in a deli section who was completely bald, right? Like, bicked his head bald. He had a hairnet on. I was like, man, you don't need to do that anymore, right? Like, what are we doing? You know? You are set free, right, from the hair falling into anybody else's whatever, food, deli meat or whatever, you know? It's like, what are we doing this is how God sets you free. He doesn't just try to strike fear in you to not screw up. It's, it's fullness of heart. And the fullness is through the Spirit. Are you free? Are you experiencing the freedom? You're not condemned. And that Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it, it lives in you. But there's the climax still, right? 12 through 17. We've got to remember who we are. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers us, higher even than justification. 
You have been taken. Do you see what Romans 8, 1 through 17 show you? You've been taken from the judicial court where you are no longer condemned. And God has walked you by the hand into the civil court. And he's given you a new family, a new name. Isn't this amazing? Man, adoption was a much more customary legal procedure in Roman society than it was uh, for the Jewish people. And Paul, though, he was a Roman citizen. He's writing this letter. So he would have been familiar with it. It's interesting, adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. So in order to pass along the estate, he would actually adopt somebody. Maybe it was a child, a youth, could even be an adult. Right? So this is often how adoption would work. And the moment adoption occurred, there were several things that became immediately true of the son in Roman culture. First, the old debts of the person who was adopted and legal obligations were paid for. Right? We just kind of talked about this. Second, that person was given a new name. A new name. Third, the new parent, the new father, became instantly liable for all of the actions of the person they adopted. So, so all the debts, all the crimes, everything, they were now going to pay for it. And fourth, the new son also had new obligations, a new privilege, if you will, to please and honor their father. All that's kind of lying behind this right here. I mean, look, the fact that we receive our sonship status proves that there was even a time, you guys, when we were not children of God. Right? Don't miss this. Some people today would tell you the opposite. We are not naturally God's children in the sense that this is talking about. This means that this father-child relationship with God, it's not automatic. Apart from Christ and receiving his work for us, we walk around as spiritual orphans and slaves. And I don't think too, I mean, notice here it's calling you sons of God. And I know there's a lot of women in this room, okay? Um, but please, I hope you're not offended or resent being called a son because this is actually elevating you to the same status that the person uh, status that they had to have to actually receive this inheritance and, and uh, a name. So you're being elevated to the same status just as much as I hope if you're a man in this room and you're called the bride of Christ, you don't resent that either, right? This is how the gospel is applied to us as men and women. We are sons, all of us. You have received, it says, what? The spirit of adoption. This image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on the legal act from the Father. You don't win over God, right? You don't negotiate with God for him to become your parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the, of the father, of the parent. It was also very costly. There is nothing that the son does to win or earn this status. It's simply received. You are chosen by God. How can you know? Well, verse 15 talks about this assurance that comes with this transaction. What does it say? Your spirit bears witness that, yes, you are a child of God. Right? There's something in you now that causes you to revere and feel connected to and long for God. Um, I remember back when Eden, my daughter, who's, who was four at the time, she's now 11. Um, we had some friends come stay with us. They were they're missionaries in Central Asia. And he's my good friend in college. His name's Darren. And uh, they brought their kids. So all of our kids were a lot younger. They, we had a, had a boy. They had a couple boys and a daughter. And 
um, we would wrestle with the kids together. And, and I just, it was so amazing to me because as we would wrestle with the kids, all the kids would pile on Darren and, and everyone had a great time. But when all the kids piled on me, all of a sudden my daughter would start crying and she would yell, no, stop it, that's my dad. Like she gets so mad. And I was like, wow, this is crazy, right? Because then everybody would pile on Darren again. She's like laughing, having a good time. They'd pile on me, no, stop it, that's my dad. She was very upset, very upset. She was feeling inside of her this, this rising up of protectiveness in that moment. Like you couldn't even argue with her. She's like, that is my dad, right? There is something within our relationship that her spirit's bearing witness with my spirit that we, we are related. See, in a similar way, like my kids, they don't need to run up to the place where I have my little lockbox. I'm not going to tell you where it's at, right? Uh, really special things in there. But they don't have to run up there and break into the lockbox and look at their birth certificates to go, okay, okay, yeah, these are my parents. No, they just, they know, right? Like, they know. This is how this works. That's what Paul's saying. You are a child of God. You're to set your mind on that. Right? Set your mind on that. What does that mean? Verse 17 tells you two things. Firstly, it tells you that means you're an heir. You have an inheritance. Right? Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. That means you have an incredible future. In, in the Roman times, the first son was the only heir. Like They get the largest share of the family wealth and property and things like that. So Paul here is taking a breathtaking turn when he calls all Christians heirs. I mean, it's It's breathtaking. This is a miracle. Paul is saying that what is in store for us, what is in store for you is so grand and glorious that it will be and it will feel as though each of us alone have gotten the most glory of God. That's how it will be. But also look, the second thing this means for you, not only your error, but there's suffering, right? Provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him, that we resemble the older brother in the family, right? But also look at what Paul says in verse 18. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. He's saying if you know where you are headed in the future, you won't even entertain the idea that your current problems and pain aren't worth it. See, most of us go, want to go right to the end of 17. We want to be glorified with him. But the road to that glorification is a road through suffering. If you want to follow Jesus, you must walk the path that he walked. And this honestly is one of the great mercies of God in our life because suffering strips away things from us. It brings great clarity in our life. When suffering comes, it shows you if you are an orphan or if you really are a child. Suffering is great because it shows us where we have been placing our hope, where we've been placing our trust, what we've been building our life upon. Have I been building my life upon moralism? Have I been building it upon the fact that I believe God owes me something? Is it being built upon duty or or Christian culture or something like that? Or is this the real deal? Suffering clarifies that. It strips things away. I just want to speak candidly. I mean, some of you here... Tonight, you are, you are stuck 
in the first part of, of verse 15. Right? You are still in slavery. Again, God has paid your debt and you've gotten out of prison and you've walked back into it again, right? You're still wearing the hairnet. You're driven by fear, not freedom. Right? There's something that's true that's being declared over you. And you're living according to something else that's just not true. I don't know how you function, but like in our house, like there's a little bit of a debate around what we should, what time we should set the clocks to. I think we should just set them to what time it is, right? And there's some clocks that get set five minutes early or five minutes late and that sort of thing. I don't know how you guys function in your house, but, but I'm like, hey, I want to know what time it is so I can live according to that time. I don't want to do math all the time. Am I, well, was this the one that's 10 minutes late or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. But I think in a, in a much broader life sense, there is an objective truth to who you are in Christ. But you can still be living according to a different truth, right? A different time, if you will. Or we could just line up with it, right? You functionally live like an orphan when you are an adopted child of God, we functionally can live like orphans and we have symptoms that we are when we live in such a way that we believe we have to take care of ourselves. You're living like a functional orphan. Or you live in such a way that you think, I have to be strong. I've got to be strong. Or you're living in a way that you have to protect yourself from being taken advantage of or you cannot depend on anybody else. Or you cannot be weak. Or maybe you crave to be taken in and loved, but you doubt you ever will. Or you want to be accepted, right? You want to belong, but you just don't feel like you do. Or you just have to trust yourself and you, you can't trust anybody else or you can't get too close or you're on the outside looking in. That's, that's functionally an orphan. But if the clock is set to the right time, you will have other symptoms too. See, a son of God feels secure in their weakness, Sons know they are loved because they were chosen. Sons find their rest in knowing that they're taken care of. Sons depend on their fathers. Sons know they are protected. Sons know they belong. Sons trust. Sons run to their fathers in joy and in their pain. Do you remember who you are? I mean, I know this is a process and and we need to be gracious with ourselves and we need to be gracious with each other just as much as God is gracious and patient with us. We know that we don't just get this in our brains and we're always going to remember it. I think Jerry Bridges in his famous book, um, Disciplines of Grace, has a great analogy of this. He, he tells the story of a, a Russian pilot during the Cold War who flies a plane from a base in Russia to a U.S. base in Japan, and he claims asylum. And they fly him to the United States. He's debriefed. He's given a new identity. He's set up as a bona fide resident of the United States. And in time, he becomes a citizen. Uh, This Russian pilot's experience illustrates to some degree what happens to us when we are set free and we are given a new name. Right, this man changed kingdoms. He was given a new identity, this, this Russian pilot, a new status. He was no longer a Russian. Right? He was an American. He was no longer under the rule of what was an oppressive and totalitarian government. He was free. 
to take advantages of all that our country affords people. This, this former Russian pilot, however, was still the same person, right? He had the same personality, same habits, same cultural patterns, but he had a new identity. He had a new status. And as a result of this identity and status of living in a free country, he had the opportunity to grow as a free person, to discard the mindset that he had when he lived in Russia before, to put off that bondage. Bridges comments, this pilot died as a Russian citizen and was made alive in a new identity as an American citizen. As an American, all the resources of the government were at his disposal. In fact, what he had become in status, but this could not have happened without first changing it. That's what he says. When we as believers died to sin, right, when we were set free, right, we died to a status wherein we were under bondage to the tyrannical reign of sin. At the same time, we were granted citizenship in the kingdom of God and through our vital union with Jesus Christ, we are furnished all the resources we need to become, in fact, what we have become in status. Remember when Jesus went up to his disciples and he said to them, who do, who do you say that I am? Remember that? He wasn't trying to figure out who he was. No, he knows who he is. He was wondering if other people understood. We're very different than Jesus, though. We often walk around and we ask that same question, but we aren't wondering if people understand who we are. We are wondering if we are worthy, if we are accepted, if we are loved. Like, do you have worth? Do you have value? Yes, I mean, the God who spoke and spun planets into motion looks at you and calls you his son and daughter. And then we have Jesus, our our older brother, who never screwed up once. He's absolutely perfect. He fulfills that law of righteousness. And you don't resent his kind of perfection because he's not like the older sibling who holds their perfection over you and says, I'm awesome, you're the worst. You know, that kind of idea of everyone, my parents, parents love me more than you, that sort of idea. No, he loves you. He went after you when you were wandering and he took the condemnation for you. He bled. He died for you and said, all that I have is yours. Just open your hands. In suffering or just in life, people will leave you and God will say, I am here. People will say to you, I don't love you anymore. But God will say, I always will. People will say to you, you're not worth it to me. But God says, look at the cross. You are. Rest in this, live in this. Do you remember who you are? You are free. You really are. And God wants you to experience that freedom. Let's all stand together as we pray and go into our time of response. God, we are in awe of you. There is no one like you. And I think because there's no one like you, it it makes it hard to continually believe that what you're saying is really true. It's just otherworldly. It's not what we're used to. 
God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help us not only know that we're free tonight, but experience that freedom in our life this week. I pray that who we are is really who we would understand ourselves to be. And now as we respond to you through singing and taking these communion elements, as we remember the condemnation that you took in our place, help us to have this faith, Lord, that you give us to believe that all these things are true. We are thankful, Lord, that you did what we could not do. And we are forever humbled and want to sing your praises because you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.